Welcome to Jack Theology. My name is Dr. Matt Murphy, and I'm with my friend, Dr. Kevin Young. Welcome. Good to, good to be back with you again, man, as we're <laughs> moving into part two uh, today, right? Yeah, part two. Uh, before we dive into that, just a reminder to like, share, comment, leave a review, good or bad. All the reviews help get the word out. Um, so thanks for watching. We seem to get more and more watchers, listeners every every time we do this. So thank you for the support. It's been fun to get to know some of you online as well. Uh, but we're gonna we're kind of walking through some of the Jack theology of the four tenets of evangelicalism. So last week we talked about scriptures, the authority, and specifically dove into uh, inerrancy issue. Uh, this week we want to look look at the second tenet. Uh, it's conversion. Uh, the idea of conversion, and there's a lot you can look at that. And all of these tenets of evangelicalism uh, were, were built to be kind of a big umbrella, a big tent uh, to unify as many Christians as they as people could. Um, and so we've tend to uh, kind of gotten away from that. So we want to talk about dive into that. So conversion or personal salvation might be more familiar to a lot of people. Getting we'll talk about that today. Yeah, getting saved, born again. What are the, the definitions? Uh, yeah, yeah, walk walk the aisle, um, the, the sawdust trail. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, of course, you know, the, the background, the, the church background that I came out of was very, we weren't in a tent, but there was always this like affinity for tent meetings. And they always had tent meetings and it was always about revival. And revival was always about saving souls, um, you know, bringing people to Jesus. And yeah, so there was a, a very strong uh, stream of revivalism in 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 my church background, and and that was very much uh, tied up into this idea of salvation or um, personal conversion or personal salvation or conversion. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my grandfather, my grandfather's Bible here, and I was looking at it this morning because he was a he was a big tent preacher at a revivals revival meetings in the south. He's got his good old Schofield reference Bible. Schofield reference, um, there it is. I haven't heard that in yeah. years. But that Schofield was the gold standard. Yeah. Um, which <clears throat> theologically, you know, um, built a lot of this. Uh, um, and it built on this idea of, you know, praying prayer, the sinner's prayer. Uh, I think Billy Graham probably popularized it. Uh, you know, it was a way... Um, the sinner's prayer was a way to really count the numbers <laughs> because we're American and we want to know if what we're doing is working. And so, you know, the Billy Graham revivals uh, popularized that. It was a way to count, you know, where people would fill out a card. And I remember being one as a kid and I filled out a card and I prayed the sinner's prayer. I, I probably prayed the sinner's prayer about a, at least a dozen times. As a kid. Every, every time I did something wrong or every time that the guilt or shame, I mean, there was some, there were yeah. some good preachers, you know, growing up there, there was some, some folks who, yeah. you know, you, you, you would get saved several times during the sermon, just, you know, out of that guilt or, or fear of, of hell or yeah. not being like, saved. It didn't work. It didn't work the first time. <laughs> so. I think, you know, I feel like I don't, I think you raced through something though, just there that was a revelation to me and was kind of shocking. I, I in fact, didn't want to believe it when I first heard it. It took me a while to really come to terms with it. Is that this idea of saving souls or being born again or salvation? You know, getting people to pray a prayer, doing an invitation or an altar call, is very recent in church history for most of 2000 years of church history that that language would not have been understood that we use today and even this idea of somebody praying a prayer or, or getting saved or or becoming born again in the way that we think of it is um not something that the church for most of church history uh would have seen as would have seen in the same way that we do yeah um not at all it's, but I was, uh, you know, I was raised to believe it was always this way. You know, they had, you know, Peter had an altar call. Paul had an altar call. You know, St. Augustine had altar yeah. calls. Yeah. I, yeah. It was really born out of the revivalists. I mean, you brought up a great point. Um, it was a, a revivalist tool uh, to to kind of measure what was happening, uh, to measure 
uh, success. I mean, I saw it firsthand in my environment. I mean, we, as a, as a young pastor, we counted all the time, you know, people, how many people prayed the prayer this week or this year. And we'd, we'd celebrate it. It was, you know, something we celebrated regularly. And so you learned as a pastor, I learned how to manipulate that, right? How to get people to pray the prayer. Uh, yeah. There's definitely a formula to it. And you become pretty good at it. Um, and uh, it made us feel good. And it's how we got pay raises. <laughs> really? And, uh, oh. oh, yeah. Really? So, oh, wow. Okay. Some, yeah, that was some of the numerics Ooh. we used was how many people came to Christ, right? In your ministry this year, how many people are on the path to becoming a pastor like you um, were the two big. And then obviously how big your ministry was growing was another big one. Those were like kind of the three numerics that they would look at. We were, uh, we were, we were Baptist. Um, So for us, it might not be a surprise that baptisms were, were the primary metric. But as you were talking, I was, I was reflecting on that and thinking, I think baptisms were the primary metric for us because we were so in on saving souls and getting people to pray that sinner's prayer, which by the way, there is no sinner's prayer in scripture. You're not going to find it in Romans or, or Matthew. Uh, but we were so in on that and people prayed it so many times. I think that there became this distrust between the Baptist pastors that, well, you know, well, your number of salvations are 3000, but that's because a hundred people prayed the prayer 300 times. <laughs> that, that year. So we don't want to know the number. We don't want to know the number of people who got saved. Cause we know that Mildred got saved at least seven and a half times. <laughs> we want to know the number of baptisms, the number of people that you fully immersed underwater because you know, sprinkling doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah. we, we, our metric was baptisms. That's what the pastors would ask each other is, but that was what, you know, they were essentially asking was how many people got saved. Cause there was that, link, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. not just the bat, but there also was that work and baptism was seen as a work of, um, a work of, we would have said salvation plus nothing, but if you weren't baptized, you were out of God's will. And if you're out of God's will, you weren't going to heaven. If you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's yeah. A, there's an avalanche. We of weren't as, we, we counted baptisms as well, but we weren't as baptistic as you. So it was, no, not everybody can be right. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit more passive on the <laughs> baptism stuff. We would have those random, you know, I don't know if this is Baptist of us, but we would have like spontaneous baptisms where at the end of a service, we would do the sinner's prayer and then, ask those people to get baptized on the spot. And, uh, so we would do that sometimes, but, um, so yeah, it, over time, I think, well, it started, I think as a way to measure, to see if what you were doing was having traction. It was a way to, um, uh, to quantify, to give, cause, cause the work, the spirit, our spiritual work as pastors is hard to, hard to quantify. Like when you're investing in, in lives and souls, um, you don't always see at the end of the day, like if I was like when I do construction, like I was a roofer, I could see like, Oh, we did that half of the roof today. You know, you feel some satisfaction of that. And so I think it was a way to do that as church leaders, as, as churches to kind of see, uh, what God was up to, um, to get people to pray a prayer. Um, and, and so we, we, and also part of this, um, actually I saw a church, a part of our denomination that would tell us that we, we weren't saved if we didn't know the date that we prayed our prayer. And so, they had all these reconversions of people because people would be like, well, I was like a kid. I don't know. The VBS when I was like, I don't know, four, five, six. I don't remember. Well, if you don't know the date that you prayed the prayer, then you're not saved. <laughs> and so they had all these people, you know, and so they, they would they would report all these numbers to our denomination of how many people were coming saved. And it's like, well, those people were already Christians. Um you just, they just couldn't remember when they started following Jesus. Um, well, I think you I found that interesting. I, I think you point out one of the, 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 there was so much fear and so much guilt and so much shame wrapped up in it. And, um, it, it, it yeah, I, I think it, for many people, I don't think it started out of a place of wanting to cause fear and shame. 
and, and guild. It started from a, a good place in the heart. But, you know, that idea of, of measuring things and, and um, you know, there, I was thinking, you know, walking an aisle, somebody getting saved in a big crowd of people creates energy. It creates momentum. And this idea of revivalism, you know, it feeds a lot of things, that, that energy. And it becomes, um, as you said, you, you know, like you said, you, you learned how to work the system of spiritual growth, that process in order to get people to that point, whether or not it was true, you know, who knows, who cares, but, but you learned how to massage the system, uh, in order yeah. to get the metric yeah. that you wanted. And I think, you know, one of the primary concerns with evangelicalism today is there, there seems to be a wholesale mentality of it's more about massaging metrics in order to produce a very um, intentional result rather than something that feels more organic and something that feels, I think, more authentic to scripture. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people begin their deconstruction there because they start to see it's fake news, right? I can't tell you how many times like I got people to pray a prayer and then you never see them again, right? And then the flip side of it, I began to realize like as I had one really good friend, he's still a really good friend, like I was discipling him and mentoring him. He was coming to church, like he was coming to Christ. But I, I thought about it over time of like I, I never actually stopped to have him pray a prayer, you know? And uh and I remember saying that to somebody on the, our staff and they're like, Well, he's not a Christian, you gotta give him the prayer the prayer and I'm like, What do you mean? Like he he's involved, he loves Jesus, he's serving, he's doing all the things, you know, that a Christian would do. But oh, he didn't pray the prayer, so like that ah, you're screwing it up. I'm like and so like all of that like really had me question things about this whole idea of conversion and what it is. Yeah. Personal salvation. Um, it's interesting. I was, uh, I was probably a very strong, you know, Calvinist at that point, believe very strongly in personal conversion and believed, you know, once I started learning more about faith, you know, total depravity, we would never come to God unless God, you know, first reached out to us. And somebody said something that just kind of clicked in my head, you know, if God has to reach out to us first and draw us to salvation, okay, if that's the theology, then uh, many people are already saved by the time they pray the prayer. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so by the time you're actually saying the words, you're already saved because your heart has already been changed. Your heart is already aligned. God drew you there. And so it's actually this really, you know, strongly legalistic definition of what it means to be saved that began to unravel my idea of a very strong legalistic definition to be saved. Because if somebody is saved before they actually pray the prayer, then why is the prayer so important? And it was to us, it, it was it was the key, it was the linchpin. And yeah. that was the beginning of my journey to say, well, okay, maybe it's not so much about the words that are said or the prayer itself or even the timing of it, but maybe there's something else that drives conversion and drives you know, this, this alignment with the heart of God. Well, what is that? And when does that happen? And, and that was the beginning of my, my journey of questioning and I think rewriting a more authentic script to what we find in scripture over being a follower of Christ. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think we both, that's a good point about the Calvinism thing, which, um, when I got into the neo-reformed world, I realized uh, something similar. And now, to, to some of their credits, um, they began the process of in thinking in me. I think based on that on that theory that you're bringing up, um, that a Christian will just begin to follow Jesus. And so that actually got to me thinking of like what is rethinking what is conversion. Like um, when I was in the neo-reformed world, no one was telling me that I had to get people to pray a prayer. And so the emphasis became more on, you know, who's, you know, who's attending, who's in getting involved, uh, you know, and who's getting baptized and that sort of thing. So I began to rethink, like they actually helped me to rethink what conversion is, what, what all that is, which was, which was healthy. And it, I think it came out of that cause they're all Calvinists and it came out of that idea, um, that you brought up. Um, 
Richard Rohr, I I was reading him. He he has a book called Naked Now, um, and he talks about conversion. He has a chapter on conversion in there, and so um, he he talked about three different types of conversion: intellectual conversion, moral conversion, and then religious conversion. Um, and I think uh, I think that was, that's a helpful frame for for this idea, a helpful frame for conversion, because. Um, you know, in in our in our evangelical world, like what are we actually converting people to? I think is important. Uh, you know, some some churches are 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 just converting people to an in, intellectual like uh, change. Like I I didn't believe in God, now I believe in God, and there, there's no other th- there's nothing else involved in that. Um, then there's the moral conversion, which I tend to see um, a lot out there. So all the people that we probably interact with on Twitter probably line here. So if you, if you pray the sinner's prayer, um, you're going to line up with my version of morality. Um, and if you don't, then you didn't truly pray the sinner's prayer. Um, and then, um, so, and then the third, uh, conversion that he talks about is like true religious conversion, which I love the quote he has. Um, he says it's transformation into love is true religious conversion. Um, so I, th- I think there's a lot there uh, to talk about, especially the moral one, because uh, there's been a lot of talk also. I don't even actually know where it started. I didn't have time to research where this conversation started around Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um but a lot of preachers began to use similar sermons, um, you know, really the scare tactics. Like, if you don't follow my moral code, if you don't follow this, then you're going to hell. In fact, I've been told this week many times over on Twitter that because I don't believe their moral code around transgenderism, around homosexuality, um, that I, I'm going to hell. And it, one guy told me it's better – it would be better for you that you didn't weren't born. <laughs> like, I've never, I've never been told that. I, well, I've heard it, but you know, I, I grew up pretty legalistic Baptist. You know, in fact, it's interesting that Jonathan Edwards is um, in in the in the conversation now, and I think it's probably a really good thing and a good time to discuss Edwards. You, you know, it's hard, I think, sometimes for us to fully adopt or fully reject someone on the basis of. Um, our modern day perspectives and, and lens and, and our frame. Not not to say that, that we can't do it, but I, I think we have to do the same thing with historical figures as we do with scripture, and that's try to place ourselves in their shoes and see what they're seeing, and then say, you know, we reject this or, or we accept that, but try to at least first hear it through their lens and their eyes. So, you know, I went back a few years ago and I read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, read this sermon, and I was shocked by this sermon, not by how uh, over the top it was necessarily, but by how blah it was. Um, it, I mean, growing up a, a Baptist kid in a church with hellfire and brimstone and people shouting, you know, I had experienced these sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon every week using different words times 10. So, you know, I'm reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you know, about people being dangled over hell like spiders on webs or something like that. And I'm thinking this is this is like a this is a three year old lesson in the church that I grew up in. You know, this is this is what we're teaching the kids. And I thought about that and it just it woke me up because I thought, why was this sermon so powerful? Why? did it have such the reaction that it did when it was given? And it's because it's not the way things were. They they had never, Christianity and this idea of God and salvation uh, and, and anger and retribution and, and like none of that was a part of the culture in the church up until that time. And so it was shocking because it was a hard left turn from the way things had been thought. And we have now experienced so much of that over, over the decades and centuries that, that now to us, this I, we, we, a lot of evangelicalism has full scale just kind of adopted this as this is the way it always was and this is the way it should be. That's a great point um, and should kind of awaken us 
intellectually. I have an intellectual <laughs> conversion. We should have a great awakening over this topic. Uh, that it's not what the church was up until Edwards. Edwards is considered the father of the modern kind of neo-reformed movement, the maybe some in some sense the father of evangelicalism. And it, it started here with the retributive God, yeah, the, the punishing God. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, the personal salvation is not in Scripture about following a set of moral code. Um, what does Jesus do? What does he talk about? All the law is summed up in what? Loving God and loving others, right? Um, it, it's, he is constantly pushing this love thing. Your, your love for each other, they will know me, Jesus says, by your love for one another, not for what you're against, right? He doesn't say, go tell the world what you're against and why everybody's going to hell, and then they'll know me. No, it's by your love for each other. And so this moral conversion that we've seen, and it's a natural reaction, like, oh, my goodness, I don't want to be a spider dangling over hell that, you know, gets consumed by hell. So what do I need to do? Like, that's a natural question. What do I need to do to avoid that? <laughs> right. And so we've told them, well, you got to first you got to start by praying this prayer. OK, I'm in. Right. I remember as a, as a, as a youth group student constantly going to these youth retreats and the, the classic line was like, uh, the youth speaker always knew somebody who left his previous sermon retreat that died on the way home and they didn't pray the prayer. <laughs> and so now they're in hell. I'm sorry, for, like, I'm, I'm sorry for laughing, but I don't believe this person exists. But uh, No. And so we'd all be like, yes. <laughs> um, and then, then after that, right, after they scared you into praying their prayer, they would scare you into following their their set of moral code that's has no basis in scripture whatsoever. It's more basis in in the morality of the day in the culture. Um, you know, so if you don't follow those things, then um, yeah, you too are. Well, then you didn't mean it when you prayed that prayer. So you're also going to hell. You're apostate. Um, it's better that you were never born. Um. And so that's kind of what, kind of, kind of where we're at, and why a lot of people deconstruct because they, they realize like, um, well, I'm being told I'm going to hell because I don't, I don't serve enough in the church or I don't give enough to the church. Um, that actually is one that has baffled me. I, I've seen firsthand people being told that they're not a Christian because they're not able to give financially to the church. Yeah. Um, you know, and and then. Then people deconstruct. They leave the church. They they leave the faith. They like, and we wonder why. Um, so there's it's very problematic this moral conversion um, that I think a lot of evangelicals have yeah have used. Well, I think um, our our mentor, you know, Leonard Sweet. I, I heard him talking, you know, about salvation once, and I don't want to put words in uh, Lynn's mouth as to what he believes on this, go, go read his books. You know, if you want to know what Lynn thinks on this, these are my thoughts and mine alone. But one of the things that really kind of made me stop and pause and think about this is, uh, he said something along the lines of, um, saving souls or the saving souls language may well be the single thing that brings down evangelicalism, uh, that, that the, and I think what I'll put words in his mouth, what I think, I think what he meant by that was um, the focus on saving souls and the way we understand conversion and what that means and the way that we do it. Evangelicalism is so bought into something that um, may not, may be shaky at best biblically, but also has become executed in a very toxic way. It's destroying evangelicalism. And, you know, Jesus... Jesus didn't come to save souls. Uh, it may have been Lynn who said that. I don't, I don't know. But, I, you know, I think whenever you yeah. think about this, whenever you, you read the red letters and you look at what, you know, Jesus talks about, the amount of emphasis that we put into conversion and saving souls versus Jesus and the amount of time and emphasis that he put on things, um, I, you're not going to find that kind of language at all no. or even anything like it in, in the Gospels from Jesus. And yet no, we, we focus on it as if it's the, not yeah. only an important thing, but the only thing. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. The saving souls, um, 
the the lost people. Um, now, it's it's interesting because it is a metaphor. Lost is a metaphor that Jesus used in three of his parables, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Um, but like the the, uh, the idea of your soul is lost and you need what I have is very demeaning to people. Right. I think in some sense, those parables actually are talking about all of us at some point. Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't that like an ancient, I mean, isn't that basically Gnosticism where you've separated now, you've separated the soul from the person, you know, and sort of read into those three parables, this idea of lost. Well, whenever my Baptist preachers as a kid preached that it was about souls are lost, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is that that's not necessarily what that means. Yeah. Well, like we could all put ourselves in the shoes of that lost sheep, that lost coin that needs to be found that we've all strayed, right? Right. We've all gone off the path, but we aren't always, we aren't permanently there because Jesus comes and finds us and he's always pursuing us, you know? And, and so we divide, divide our world into, well, I'm never lost again because I prayed the prayer I've converted. Um, and then there's all these lost people over there. So we're like elevating ourselves over, the lost people and that will never be there again, which is completely, I don't think the point of those stories. Cause even after we're converted and we're following Jesus, there's going to be times we need Jesus to find us again. We still lose our way. Like I still lose my way yes. spiritually. Yes. So I don't think that was the point of those. And until so we use that metaphor and I think it's very demeaning, just like we need to save a soul, like a soul needs rescuing. So to your point, Jesus didn't come to save souls. He came to establish a new kingdom, a new way of living in the world. Um, That conversion is you now live in that way Jesus came to reveal to us, came to show us. Uh, So we are converted from walking. That literally is what Jesus is saying. Repent. No longer walk that way. My kingdom is now here. That's what Jesus is saying. So conversion is literally repent. I mean, literally the, 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 the Greek definition for repent is to turn, to turn around. Um, yes, to turn around. Stop walking that way. And Go start way. walking, which is totally not the way we use the word repent, uh, especially in, in churches and, and in this spiritual conversation about salvation. Um, we have so divorced the idea of actions from faith. We've so made it something that's just heart or mind that when we think repent, uh, we don't think about physical, I think actions or things we think about something very, very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Repentance is like, again, repenting of not following the moral code that has been established, you know, for us. Um, not by that's God, not what but the moral code that's <laughs> been established for us by. Yeah. Whatever, abusive leaders. Yeah. Whatever abusive leader, yeah. whatever denomination, whatever, you know, specific church, you know, you know, um, so this this moral conversion actually allows and, and creates a, a, a very like a hotbed for abuse to happen. Um, and we see it, you know, all the time. And, and which it's interesting, paradoxically, these abusive leaders can't even follow their own moral code. Right. And they fall in. <laughs> To the traps. <laughs> uh, who might that be? <laughs> I mean, there's thousands just, yeah. of them out there. No, I, well, yeah, yeah I, I mean, there there is. Um, yeah, Falwells of the world. Um, in our, in the domination I grew up in, Independent Fundamental Baptists, our, our primary leader is caught sexting with with young girls um yeah it just it you you can't it's it's no way to live you can't live that way it's it's totally a false gospel and it plays itself out in the lives of those who buy into that fault that false gospel wholesale because it doesn't it doesn't end up redeeming or transforming the heart it doesn't it doesn't lead to the fruits of the spirit when that's when you're a gospel is so anemic as just a conversion prayer uh your faith and 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 your christ likeness is this thin yeah um 
I liked I liked Roar talking about this idea that true religious conversion is a transformation into love. Yeah. So what's he like? Right? Unpack that for me. How that's different than. Um. I mean, so it's not so just. I'll it's read. not. I, I'm guessing it's not just believing. Um, it, it's not just believing a statement of belief. Um, you know, would be my guess. Yeah. So it's it's action oriented. I'll, I'll read. I'll read what he says. Um, transformation into love is the heart of religious conversion. Um, because God is love. This is not all the same of sim- simply joining a church, believing things to be true or false, or having a strong opinion on topics such as abortion, gay marriage, or healthcare reform. Um, you know, and I think in deconstruction world, those of us that are kind of not leaving the faith, we are reconstructing our faith around Jesus's love. Like that is the heart of it. That is we the lens in which we look at the world through now and so when we see something that doesn't like line up with the love of christ that's where there's a big disconnect and pushback and 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 a rub um like jesus there's a quote going around a meme going around like uh, if jesus didn't come to condemn then it's probably not your role either right (laughs) (laughs) something like that (laughs) yeah yeah i see yeah jesus yeah. Um, so for those people, though, because I can hear either in my head or I can hear, you know, on Twitter, the, the folks who are going to say immediately in response to that, that is an effeminate gospel and you must have truth. You know, you, you there is a flip side. It cannot just be law. There is also truth. And then they'll point out you know, a, a place where Jesus rebuked or, or said, repent or, or the homeless, like how do, like, how do you reconcile uh, this idea of uh, somebody who says, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> love, 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 love. Yeah. Sixties hippie love, well, but, but truth. Well, James, James Smith is good for this. Uh, they hate him too, but he's a, he's well, a I think, I think folks who say these kinds of things hate anybody who disagrees with them. Yeah, but he argues that um, your 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 habits come out of your love, right? So when I was a kid, I loved the game of basketball. And so uh, from that love, I created a set of habits. I created a set of things that I followed, rules that I followed. Um, but it wasn't hard for me because I loved the game. I wanted to get better at the game. And so he actually says, you know, it starts with our love. This is what we love. And then our habits are and practices are built out of that love rather than the opposite where we we start with a set of rules and habits and disciplines that we have no love and desire for. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to fail over and over again. Um, and so just creating a love for Christ, a love for Jesus. And Jesus even says it in his, in his word. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And so... Out from love comes obedience. And what did he command? Um, love God, love others. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you'll, you'll, if you love me, you'll obey my <laughs> command. Well, I went to a church once. My first pastor, it was in a church, and I pull up, and they have on the side of the building, and it is a huge, like, three-story, like, brick building, uh, enormous parking lot right there, and there's only, like, it's there's no windows. It's just a huge three-story big ass building brick wall with this huge verse that every parking space could see and it was this if you love me you will keep my commandments and i was like that is the most seeker unfriendly thing i have ever like really this is the first thing you want visitors to see is if you love me you'll keep my commandments <laughs> great this is like uh, there, there are worse verses you could choose, but I could probably count them on one hand. Uh, Judas went and hung himself, you, you know. But <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think that they understood because it was put there intentionally. But I don't think that they understood that Jesus' commandments were love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. That's his yeah. commandments. Yeah. But we add all these well, other... Out of- it comes out of a love like it doesn't he doesn't say obey my commandments and then that's it yeah right? love drives it love a, drives it love drives it like same with relationship with our spouses like 
if, if Kelly just gives me a set of rules to follow, like I'm going to fail at those. But if it's just love her, I'm going to begin to do the things that I know that she desires, right? Because I love her. I'm, I'm seeking her. Um, same with Christ. And, and in this world that we're talking about on the Twitters and, and, and they're out there and churches that, that are highly like moral, moral conversion, um, they leave Jesus out a lot. <laughs> um, they don't like to talk about Jesus. In, in fact, it's fascinating now. It's very hard to find a red letter Bible. I wonder why that is. I, I wonder... Why? Yeah, it's much harder they, to find. It's much harder to find the words of Jesus in some people's Bibles. Yes, and um, hearts, and hearts. They don't. They they do not. They don't like to, to dialogue around Jesus. In fact, if you if you start with Jesus, they they. I've, I've been. We were just a flaming liberal. I'm like, why? Like, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. yeah. I got I got called woke for Jesus this morning. <laughs> right, take it up. Take um, it up with him. Well, no, uh, I think that's fat. You know. Uh, God is love. Uh, love is, you know, the, the point of the gospel and the point of salvation. Well, what about truth? You know, well, love is the truth. Like, it's just like you're, you're asking the wrong question and wanting a different answer. But it's the same answer to both. You know, the, the truth of God and Jesus is love. Yeah. At least that's love. my at least that's my opinion. That's the conversion that's what we're converting into is this new kingdom of built on love. Not what we're against, not a set of moral code, but just, we're just built on love. Well, and, and the, the, the down and outer is the oppressed, um, the, the woke. These are the people who get it, which is why I think Jesus, you know, said to the uber religious people in his day, you're going to watch the tax collectors and center the tax collectors and sinners enter the kingdom of God before you. Like, like Jesus sets up this image. You're going to stand there and watch them enter the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because you're asking shitty questions like, what about truth? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about this obscure <laughs> passage that I've interpreted wrongly? Um, a woman, you know, the woman has preached and they should go to hell. I mean, I've, I've heard that it's insane what people think. Um, you're right. They get it. And, and all the law, like the, the 10 commandments like you can look like those are things that if you're loving somebody, you're going to do like Driscoll is leading the charge this week about we only deconstruct because we want to sin. I'm like, actually, that's the opposite. <laughs> I, I want to deconstruct because I want to sin less. I, I, I want to, I want to do less things that aren't looking like Jesus. And, and you're not going to steal from your neighbor if you're loving them. Like that's so unloving to go steal from your neighbor, um, murder your neighbor, right? All of those things are all just, this is how, this is, these are things that you would not do if you loved your neighbor and you loved God. Um, and none of them, none of them include um, homosexuality, how we treat transgenders, uh, healthcare, abortion. None of them include that. Um, and so it's it's fascinating to me that then we we eliminate the love of our neighbor and we just now have this moral code, um, and somehow we're deconstructing just so I can, I don't know commit some justify some sin I, there may be somebody out there that does that i have not yet to meet them um it's an excuse it's it's an excuse of it's an excuse to make a to make an attempt to only do half of jesus commandments it, it's an excuse to try to love god without loving others uh you know it, it when you talk about the gay community, when you talk about you know the, the poor, when you talk about all all of those folks that, that you that you listed, um, we will say that that we love them, but our actions don't show it because then we'll use the scripture to try to keep us from having to do the hard things of engaging with them, and it's because at the end of the day, um, we're, we're trying to. We're trying to ascribe to a salvation that's that's anemic by only loving God without loving others, and it can't be done. No, um, the other moral code that I think is part of this too. I, I, I was I read a few this week 
um, I think is is a conversion to patriotism to Christian <laughs> na- nationalism. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I accept it, my Lord and Savior America into my heart. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, our, our friend pray, William, pray this prayer after me. <laughs> I've I've uh, I've blocked William on on Twitter, and it's been such a mental relief. I needed a break from all the Christian nationalism talk, and uh, and I think the algorithm like has learned that I don't want to hear see that. So I haven't seen really much Christian nationalism talk, but I got on our Jack Theology page and I searched him up and just to see what he was up to and that's what essentially what he's saying is like if you're going to be a good christian you're going to be a good patriot i'm like oh my gosh um and so i think this allegiance idea we've talked about on here before that i think part of conversion is love um and you're loving like jesus so you're giving your allegiance to love like jesus loved you're you're following his new way like when he says repent my kingdom is here. It means you're you're t- literally turning and walking his way in the world, and so allegiance is important. And I think that the whole born again, the whole pray the sinner's prayer to this moral code misses the mark because we're actually not giving our allegiance to Christ. We're giving our allegiance to the moral code. We're giving our allegiance to we we get to keep our allegiance to our to the American way of life. Uh, we're giving our allegiance maybe to that denomination, to that, that church, uh, environment, what have you. But, you know, maybe fifth on the list is our allegiance to Jesus and, and what he wants to do. And so we have to then filter Jesus through all those other allegiances, you know? Um, so if Jesus doesn't line up with our Republican way, then that must not be what Jesus meant. If Jesus doesn't line up with the way our denomination operates, that must not be what Jesus wants and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I think, so I think Jesus ends up bowing to our other allegiances. You're right. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, this is a bold statement, but I think um, that some a lot of us need to need to take a break uh, from our patriotism. Uh, we need to take a break, you know, not, not be anti-American or anything like that, but like, uh, really think about all the ways in which we give our allegiance to our country over, over Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe no, take a step back. I, you know? um, a, a lot of people may not be able to go this far, but I heard a veteran, I was talking to a veteran, um, who it, we were having a conversation, a conversation literally just essentially about this, about this idea of patriotism and allegiance and the, the fact that having been baptized and in, into this, um, civil religion, this allegiance to patriotism and to country and beginning to wake up and see how that has impacted our more important allegiance uh, and faith. You know, he was just kind of saying, what, what do you do? I was asking a few of us, how do you, how do you disconnect or break yourself from it? And so we were talking about that and he said, and for a veteran to say this was so, so huge to me. He says, I, I don't, I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. Uh, he says, it's not as though I don't necessarily love my country or, or subscribe to this idea that uh, I have a level of allegiance to America and, and to the nation that I served and still love. But whenever I say those words, um, I just I can't say those words because it it takes me to a place of putting my allegiance there in front of. The other. So, you know, he stands. He's still respectful. Um but I thought that that was an interesting, you know, as you were talking about that, making making meaningful changes, whatever that may be, uh, in order yeah, to... Yeah, I think, uh, like, to, hit, to your friend's point who was speaking, I think the way I've done it, like, I, I've, I've, I've thought, like, at least for a year, I need to, like, disengage a bit, even my own soul. Like, now, currently, I'm in this process of, like, trying to rip away my... Because I, I felt that, like, man, I, I, I might be more allegiant to my country unknowingly than I am to Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, so I think I, I thought about it from the lens is like, what would I do in another country? Like, how would I react, respond to their allegiance building stuff? You know, I would be respectful. I would stand for their pledge, their pledge of allegiance. I would stand for their national anthem, what have you. Um, 
but I wouldn't participate. Um, you know, I'm not putting my hand over my heart and saluting the, you know, their flag. I'm not, I'm not saying their pledge of allegiance. Um, I'm not singing their national anthem, but I'm just being respectful. Um, I think for so a that's kind of where I'm at. For a lot of Christians, that you, you and I just triggered a bunch of people. Um, the idea, oh yeah, you know, and it goes this far. Yeah, well, it, and it, it obviously goes back, you know, to Kaepernick and taking a kneel, and and so it's tied up in a lot of other things. But for whatever reason, for a lot of folks who are listening, that that idea, that thing is is triggering, and uh, rather than just say you're wrong for being triggered or you're wrong for not being able to avoid doing that. I, I think maybe what I would ask is let's consider the place where that friction, what is it that drove within ourselves a reaction, a negative guttural reaction to the idea of not saying the pledge of allegiance or, you know, to go to Kaepernick, you know, taking a knee, you know, on the field during, during the national, like, like what is it, what, what within ourselves caused that reaction? And that's, that is the thing that we have to pick up and look at and say, am I holding this in equal or more importance than my faith? Uh, is, is there, is there something there between those two where it's winning out and maybe not, but maybe so. And so yeah. I think, I think yeah. that, that feeling, whatever, whatever that is, has to be ground that we till within ourselves to make sure um, that that we're that we're baptized in the right faith. Yeah, like like that's a good example. I think the Kaepernick issue. So like, if you're really angry that he's not respecting your flag, um, you're missing the whole point of why he's taking a knee, right? Which, if you're if we're transformed by love, we're we're looking at the lens through Jesus. I want to find out, like, why is he taking a knee there? Like, why does he feel like he can't respect our flag? I want to, I want to learn that. I, I don't want to yell at him. Like, I, I want to love him in that. Like, and you, and then you can, then you can start, start to talk to a guy like that about maybe appropriate ways to interact with things like this. Um, but the first instinct as a, as a, as a converted Christian shouldn't be to viscerally yell at a guy like that. It, it should be to, well, why ask the questions like what's going on? Like, um, you know, same in just our own lives. Like if somebody, you know, abruptly does something to me, that's, that's negative. Um, my, my instinct actually in my flesh is to, maybe defend, be defensive, maybe to maybe lash back to, to respond in kind the way they responded to me. Um, and it's hard to take it down to our level as a, as a personal human. It's hard when, you know, somebody is like personally offensive to you to like ask, why are they being like this? Right. To, to enter into their world and show them love. That is very difficult. Um, and I don't know, I'm not always perfect at that, but that I think is what we're converted to be. And that's why Jesus says, you know, um, it, if my brother, you know, like, you know, seven, forgive 70 times seven, he, he wants to, um, you know, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. All of those things are just built on, on this transformation of love that are very difficult. And you and I have both been in situations where we've been personally attacked and, and, and we don't want to like love them. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And like, there's people's homes in this town. I drive by and I get angst, right? Like, uh, but I'm called to love and put aside this, um, this feeling and, and enter into their fray. Cause there, there may be a good reason for, there may be a hurt. There may be a pain that I can enter into with them. So conversion, salvation, evangelicalism. I, I feel like we could take multiple podcasts to unpack this, but at the end of the day, what is the, what do you think is the place of conversion or, or salvation? Is there a place for conversion, salvation? How do, how do you define it? Um, is, is it important to know who's in and who's out? I, I mean, I think those are valid, especially for evangelicals. Those are valid. Those are valid questions. You, you know, how, how far, how far does it go? Um, I may not, I, I, I may not agree with the way salvation and, and conversion was understood in the church of my, in, in my church of origin. But 
what now? You know, where, where do I, where do we go from here? Even assuming a, a gospel of love is, is, is that essentially all it is? It's just living, living love. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. So Jesus, you know, disciples are questioning what, what's going to happen. Where, we, how's this going to work? Um, you know, how are we going to take over the world? They, they're still thinking uh, there's going to be a political reign. There's going to be a, 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 you know, probably violence, a violent takeover. Yeah, they were patriots. Yeah, they're patriots. And, and Jesus says. Patriots for, they Zion. Know, for Zionism. Yeah, yeah. They will know you by your love for each other. And, you know, obviously after Jesus died and, and told Peter, to put his sword away. No, that's not the way we're doing this. And. <laughs> Judas, Judas got ticked off because Jesus wasn't doing it the way he thought she's, you know, and he betrayed Jesus and Jesus dies and he resurrects. Then the disciples got it. And that's what they did. They look at Acts 2. They built their community on love. It was we sold all. We prayed together. We, we studied the, the, you know, Jesus. We learned about love deeper. We knew each other by our love. And so when somebody was unloving in that community and they were risked church discipline and, you know, being removed from that community, that was a big deal because they didn't, did not want to leave that community because it, all their needs, all, all of what they needed in society was provided for in that faith community. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge deal if, you know, and I'm sure the early church wasn't perfect, but because they were so close to Jesus and his teachings, I think we should look at them for a model. Um, and we've gotten so far away from that in our society today. Um, you know, we're, we have tribes built on anti this and anti that. Um, and we're fighting about all these things and we're not loving each other. Let's be honest. We're not, we're not showing each other love. And so then people are just leaving the church. They're just leaving the faith. They're leaving, leaving, leaving because they don't, they see Jesus as a love loving person and they, that doesn't line up. And so they're out. Um, you know, I love Jesus, <laughs> you know, the, the quote, I love Jesus, but I don't love your church. Um, you know, holds true in our society today. I've heard, I hear that over and over again. Um, in fact, um, <laughs> I, I put up a sign that, you know, uh, recently that had some kickback at our church sign outside and, um, there was a way you could have taken it sexually, like a sexual innuendo. It wasn't explicitly sexual, but some pe- people took it that way and got upset with me and I had to take it down. Right. Oh, so you legit, and, I saw you legit put it on the sign. Yeah. 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 Oh, I thought you just used like a computer gener- a computer graphic generator. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize you actually put that on the side. Holy. <laughs> and so, uh, should I put up an so, image of that or not? Or <laughs> no, no. okay, so we won't. We won't no. put. I won't put. I won't, yeah, let's not. Oh, let's, you can put it up. Yeah, well, okay, some people. It. It, I thought it was. I thought it was good. Some people took it that way. Ha ha ha. Some people took it like, oh god, I'm up. You know, they didn't think about it sexually. It was like a very, it was a very like borderline thing. But yeah. there was so much anger over it, right, towards me. And so I, I just took it down. It's not worth fighting over, right? Um, well, if you don't so, like, if you don't like borderline statements, you wouldn't really like Jesus or Paul. <laughs> if you yeah, but, if you read them in context, but yeah, okay, but all I, right. But my point is, like, I've had so many conversations with people in the community. Like, why'd you take that sign down? That was amazing. I love that you put that up. That were, and then when I told them why, it was because you know all these church people got mad at me. Um, they're like, that didn't line up with them. They were very angry that that like. <laughs> Like the church can't have a sense of humor. The church can't like, uh, you know, no, no, it can't. No, it, it can't. Like not, a, about it, not about it, itself. No, it was just, uh, that was enlightening to me. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like what this has stirred up. And, and then like, people are like, I like that you as a pastor would be willing to like try to be funny. Um, and I don't like that other people in the church are angry with you that you tried to be funny, you know, yeah. on a very kind of, you know, not that bad of a thing. Um, so anyways, it was, uh, it was very interesting. And I, I think that's just a microcosm of like so much more that of why there's such a disconnect between the church and 
the broader community in the world around us. Yeah, no, I think you, you hit on a great, you know, in, in that whole thing, what, what I heard over and again, which resonated with me is this idea of community and salvation as community. And so much of what you see in scripture, uh, it's written that way, but we don't see it that way because we don't think of ourselves as being community. You use the word tribal. And I think you're right. We, we are, we are tribal and are increasingly tribal here in the U.S. and especially within the church. And that is not really the way that Judaism is and, and certainly isn't the way that Judaism was. It was about community and together and blessings and curses came uh, as a part of the community, not as a part of the individual. And so whenever, you know, this idea of salvation is is used, this term is used in OT and New, T, New Testament, it's uh, it's in regard to community, you know, the, the community being saved. And, and so much of what you see the early church doing is saving the community in the way that they lived, uh, in the way that they blessed and, and treated the community. And I think that this idea of being in community and being in community of faith, this idea of forsaking not the assembly isn't about going to church every Sunday. It's about not turning your back and leaving on the community of people who are a part of the faith. And so when I think about salvation, I think that we've totally, we've totally misread the New Testament in a lot of ways because we see this idea of belief and we think mental assent to a doctrine. I believe, you know, confess with your mouth. Well, what are you confessing with your mouth? That I believe these things about Jesus to be true. And that is not the way that believe was originally utilized in the languages of the Bible. Well, uh -huh. but Peter, you know, he gave that sermon on Pentecost, 3000 people believed in all of the things that he said. And so they came to Christ and came to the church. Well, yes and no, but believe a better word for believe that is more authentic. And I love that you've been going here because it just struck me that this was I totally didn't think about this for the last hour. Uh, it's beloved. The way mm. the New Testament uses the word belief is more like our word beloved. It is a better translation that we love God and love others. And that is belief. And so whenever the, the New Testament, whenever they talk about belief, believe with your mouth, confess with your heart, it's talking about confessing and believing this idea of a love of God and a love of others that plays itself out actively. You, you can't just say it. You have to live it by living it. You're actually saying the sinner's prayer. You know, you, you, New Testament, you, you don't say a sinner's prayer. There, there's nothing in there of that. But by living the way of Christ, you are following him by living the way of Christ. You are believing in your loving. And that is salvation. It is proof of a converted life. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, peace, you know, all of these things. That is, that is conversion is when your life is showing those things. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I've started using the term, uh, this so-and-so started walking the way of Jesus in our community. Um, you know, I, I, I want to, I'm trying to, to eliminate from my mind, you know, someone came to Christ, someone, you know, put their faith in Christ. Although those can be good terms, but those are terms that we used a lot. And there's a lot of baggage, a lot of baggage. So I, yeah, this person just started the way, walking the way of Jesus with our community. It's been cool, you know, um, because that's, I think that's more accurate. Like the, the whole idea of repentance is turning and walking a different way. Well, they were um, called the way. I, I, I yeah, love that language. Yeah. The early church, you know, in Acts, the way, uh, that, that was, that was how they, that was how they described themselves. Yeah. Um, so that's good. I, I agree totally. Um, I think at least for me, I, I do think conversion is important and I think all sects of Christianity throughout the world, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, um, would, would have a, a call and a need for conversion. Um, and, but it's just how you look at it that that becomes very different. And I think, as we've established here through this conversation, that there can be very, very uh, I think wrong and abusive ways to look at it, uh, manipulative ways um, that have you know led us to where we're at today. In yeah. This conversation. Oh man, absolutely. You know, salvation. What English word comes from? If I'm right, salve, which is a healing balm 
And I, I just, I, I don't think that for me and for a lot of what I've seen in evangelicalism, this idea of salvation has been a salve for, for wounds. Um, it's, it's caused more wounds um, and oh. more abuse than it has ever healed. And to me, that means that we have misunderstood um, and, and our idea of salvation and conversion is totally broken because it's, it's wounding people rather than healing. And we've got to address that and figure out what's wrong. 